Hello and welcome to episode 7 of The Keys to Owning. It has been a minute and I just wanted to say thank you all so much for your encouragement while I was in school. I'm very excited to be finished and if all goes well, I will be successfully writing my brokerage exam in February. I am very excited and will hopefully be a broker at your disposal in uh, sometime early 2022. Throughout the time that we were away, we still were recording episodes. Now we've got six in the queue, and I'm very excited to share those with you. If you do like the show, please do uh, share it with someone, subscribe. If you have comments, feedback, anything is welcome. It only helps us improve, and we're really here to serve you, uh, and it's kind of fun for me. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. You're listening to The Keys to Owning, a real estate show about Canadian property owners what they wish they knew sooner, their advice, and how they got to where they are today. Today, I uh, have the pleasure of sharing with you some of the stories from Mama Jang. So I did interview my mother in August uh, about her experience in real estate, and I'm really excited for us to kind of learn from her. I'm going to be honest here, the first like 10-15 minutes are a little dry. It's kind of some fact setting, etc. And then it gets into some really interesting stuff about what goes into owning a property long term and the cost of that. Let's get to it. For the listeners, can we provide a little bit of context as to what your journey was that sort of led you to real estate? We were looking for a a small to modest home because we had been living in a fairly small home in this factory and we're quite used to something that was a, a moderate size. You know, 900 square feet was plenty for us. So when we moved to Barrie, we didn't have any extravagant ideas of owning a gigantic home, which was really good because gigantic homes were very expensive that year. Now, I don't want to age you at all, but what year did you guys move to Barrie? We moved to Barrie in 1989. So when you moved to Barrie, what was the market like at that time. Can you speak a little bit to what extremely expensive was and also a little bit about what mortgage rates were like? Really expensive for us meant that we paid 156000 for our two-bedroom bungalow that had an attic, which we used as a bedroom. So that for us was really expensive at the time. We looked at one that was 165000 That was just out of our reach. We chose our home because it was walking distance for me to go to work, and we knew we could only afford one vehicle. Mortgage rates at the time had come down a lot. When we graduated university, when we started, you know, our friends started looking for homes in 1980, 1981, interest rates were as high as 18%. So we were very lucky to get something in the range of eight point something. I can't remember exactly. And then it went down from there. We thought that we were laughing when we got down to the 6% range. It was great. Guys, did you hear that? 8%. This is something that everyone in a mortgage now or going into home ownership now should just be aware of. The government introduced a new stress test. Some of you may have heard about it in June this year. And with that new stress test, they're testing your mortgage qualification against a higher interest rate to sort of make sure that you still would be able to pay your mortgage if interest rates went up. And that's what's going to be used now to qualify you. So it made it a little bit more difficult to qualify for a mortgage than it was before, or at least as large of a mortgage as you would have been able to 
few before. But the important part about this is that they're actually doing a really good thing because they're protecting us sort of or protecting the housing market against like a huge influx of people uh, not being able to pay their mortgage and having to sell their house. I just wanted you to kind of like appreciate the interest rates that we have now. We should always just be prepared. And when you are doing your budget, be prepared uh, for those to go up. So I guess you guys had had taken a traditional fixed mortgage at that time. We had inherited the mortgage when we purchased the house. This is another concept that actually to people... To people kind of going into home ownership now, it's not a super common thing that's talked about. Basically, what that means is let's say that I'm buying a house for Mary and she has a really good mortgage rate and a really, you know, reasonable mortgage agreement with her bank. I would actually have the opportunity to take over her mortgage. Um, it can be used as even like a negotiating tool in larger purchases and things like this if somebody doesn't have to pay the fees to break their mortgage. These are things that just keep in the back of your toolbox for when interest rates do go back up because these are conversations that we might see coming back into the market. We also had to think about some of the costs about choosing that we would incur if we chose to live somewhere else. We chose to live in downtown Barrie, where we could walk to almost everywhere we needed to go. The library, the grocery store, our children could walk to school, I could walk to work. That saved a lot of money in terms of having to buy another vehicle. If we had to buy another vehicle where we had to drive children here and there and drive to work, that would have been another expense. So that was a factor in choosing where we uh, ultimately bought our house. And that's a really important one, considering transport. And these are the types of things that people often forget in their monthly budget when they're actually going over the things that they need to consider and the actual cost of living. Um, So I'm really happy that you brought that up. When we had our fourth child, we decided that we needed a little bit more room, not in our house, but we wanted a bigger backyard, but we wanted more land for our children to play in. Our yard was quite small. And my husband and I began to look outside of Barrie to the countryside to see what was available. We did find some things that we thought we might be able to afford. And then when we factored in traveled. We decided that we would be trading a small yard for much of our time in a vehicle, which would be smaller than the yard. So we shelved that idea for a very short time. And then another idea came up. The house right behind us had a huge yard. And the man who built and owned the house was getting old and he needed to move So we put his house up for sale. We proposed something creative. We asked, would you like to just switch houses with us? Because we have a perfect bungalow with bedrooms, bathroom, kitchen, everything on one floor. And then you could still use your big backyard where you love to do your gardening. We could put a gate in the fence. He thought it was a great idea. And we really seriously entertained just house swapping legally and giving him access to using the yard. In the end, it didn't work out because his children had power of attorney of his finances and they wanted him to sell the house. So we bought the house behind us. Let's say you do have an older neighbor and you know that they don't have kids or something like this and you want to buy their house. It's a good time to get into the market and you could get it at market value, allow them to benefit from the money, let's say, that would come from that sale. And there are types of agreements in place that would still allow them to reserve that right and you could still be a beneficiary in terms of an investment. I just think that's so interesting. I actually didn't know that you guys had done that. And I just think it's so interesting. And there are definitely legal ways to protect yourselves in those transactions that a lot of people don't know about. So when it came time to buy another property, this is how it happened. 
my husband's mother had died and left a small amount of money. And we thought, what can we do with that money to make it grow the best? So we decided to take that money and invest it in some real estate. It was too expensive to buy real estate in Barrie. So we looked a little further afield to see where prices were less expensive, where that little bit of an inheritance could act as a down payment for something elsewhere where we couldn't afford it in Greater Toronto Area. Barrie was part of that. I know you said that you guys came into some money through an inheritance, but what led to that decision? We didn't need to do anything immediately with with the money. We were okay. This was in 2013. My husband was going to retire. We wanted to make sure that there was that money didn't just disappear frivolously on spontaneous wishes. We thought, let's take that money and make it grow into something that was a little bit of a legacy that would have made his parents proud and give us something that lasted a little bit longer than just some toys. In the meantime, I'd become a little bit curious about real estate and the markets and how prices changed. And we had children living in Montreal. And I thought, what's the market like in Montreal? And lo and behold, the market in Montreal was really good compared to Barrie or Toronto. Secondly, we had one of our children living in Montreal who was thinking that maybe someday they'd like to buy their own property. And we thought, what a great opportunity for us to purchase something in Montreal, rent it out and help that child, help our son learn how to be a property manager if he wanted to. We proposed the idea to him and he said yes. So for several months, I scoured the real estate ads. And well, the only way to really make money is not to buy a single family home, but to buy a multiplex. And triplexes were really common in Montreal. I must say, I knew nothing. They were also really cheap in Montreal at the time. Yeah, they were really cheap at the time. And I looked for something where we could take the bulk of the money and put it down as a down payment. We we need at least 20%. We knew that. So I looked and looked and looked and looked and looked and finally found something. One that was an empty triplex, empty because the owner was renovating it. There were three units. Two units were completely renovated. And the owner uh, and her partner got tired of renovating and her partner got a full-time job and didn't want to renovate anymore. So two-thirds of the triplex were renovated. One-third was untouched and needing quite a bit of work, but all the materials for the renovation were included in the price. And it had been on the market for several months. And Did you have a broker with you at this time or how did you know what to look for? I didn't. I didn't have a clue. I must confess, I really didn't know much except I thought, these are the rents, the average rents. And where did you find that information? Oh, I looked. I, I looked online. What's it cost to rent an apartment in Montreal? What's it cost to buy So did you triplex? literally go through rental ads? I did. I went through rental ads. And then I also knew you could only raise rents a certain amount. I'd learned that from being in Ontario, that probably you can only raise rents a certain amount. So I didn't want to buy something that was already occupied if I didn't have to, because if I had an empty place, we could just set whatever price we thought we could get. And I found this one place that was empty, two-thirds renovated, and it had been on the market for several months, and the price had dropped $100,000. And I thought, that's the one we get. Did any part of you feel anxious about that? Was there any alarm bell that went off for having such a drastic drop in price because at that time $100,000 was probably about 20% of the purchase price. So to me, if I see a property drop like that, immediately I have red flags and questions. It doesn't mean it's not a good deal, but there are things that you need to start looking for. Yep, absolutely. And I thought, well, how can we manage to avoid some of the major things? Get an excellent house inspector. And that was my safeguard. As I say, I was very naive going into all of this. I might have been a lot more cautious if I were doing it now, but 
2013, my husband was going to retire. I knew that we needed to qualify for a mortgage before he retired because his income was going to drop. I knew that prices eventually would be going up because everything else was going up except this one. And I thought this person really wants to sell. So we made the decision to look at one property in Montreal because we really couldn't afford the other ones that we looked at. They didn't make sense. They were all rented out. This was the one that caught my eye. So I thought, what's our next step? We need a real estate agent because I don't know anything about buying property in Quebec. Not only was it another town, it was another province. I knew nothing and another language. This is a really important point, actually, for anybody listening, especially people who are from one province and move to another. It is never safe to assume that real estate is done the same way in one province compared to an X. They have their own rental boards. They have their own laws that govern how condo associations run, etc. The main steps and things to look for in the building are very similar. But in terms of the legalities, the process, the, the information you have to have in order, the type of professionals that you need to use, that can differ from province to province. So it is really important to consult a broker. I think that was a really smart move. You did mention that there were a couple of things you wish you had known or that you might do differently with the triplex if you were going into it today. Do you mind listing some of those things or, or what? Do you have any regrets? I don't have any regrets because we've learned so much and that alone is fun. It's challenging. It's scary, especially owning a triplex in another province where the rules are different. Our triplex is adjoining to other triplexes. I would have explored more clearly had I known what is a syndicate? What is the syndicate of ownership? Because we're in a syndicate with two other owners who own joined triplexes. So it's a nineplex. We own a third of it. And there are two other owners. We didn't know anything about the rules of syndicates or regulations of things that needed to be completed, documents that were required every year by the government. We didn't know any of that. So because you are technically in a co-ownership with these two individuals, are you in a divided co-ownership or an undivided co-ownership? We're in a divided co-ownership. Which is interesting and quite unusual. It's very unusual. For triplexes to be adjoining and in a, a divided co-ownership. Usually they would be in an undivided co-ownership, if anything. We have understood from our real estate agent that she doesn't didn't know at the time in 2013 of another situation quite like that. That didn't occur to us as anything unusual because we had no idea about what any of that meant. So looking back... We should have thought, why is this unusual? Why aren't there more like this? What should we explore more? What kinds of things, what are the implications of this? What does this mean if the roof leaks? What does this mean if the balconies that service all three triplexes need to be replaced? Who owns what? And we just assumed that the documents that we acquired at the time of purchase addressed all of that. They were all in French. We aren't bilingual. But heck, the lawyer said everything was fine. And we didn't know that there were questions we should have asked. So looking back, uh, there was more homework that we should have done. On the other hand, had we done all that homework, we might have said this is too scary for us to deal with. I really love that you, well, A, I love that you brought up that despite being experienced homeowners and landlords, you didn't know all of these things. And I think that you're definitely not the only one. Every interview that I do for these podcasts, I'm learning things that I'm like, oh shit, excuse my language. 
Um, I really didn't know these things or some of them I knew and had an idea of, but I wasn't sure about the intricacies. I think especially moving into, you know, this profession, I'm learning a lot more about it. I like this type of stuff. Uh, doing the podcast has been fantastic. Going to school for this has been fantastic, but there's so much to owning a home and every single type of property really has a different set of questions that you should be asking. We relied so much on the lawyer, which was great. And she was great. But looking back to that day in the lawyer's office, I remember us saying, uh, is this a document we really need to keep? Is this something that's important? And the lawyer saying, no, that one's not important. Yes, that one's important because that's your certificate of whatever. And yes, this is your survey, which came under a different name that we didn't recognize. Not only was it in French, but it was things were worded differently. So even direct translations didn't mean a lot to us. So we were so naive about the technicalities. I think it's so, so interesting to have so many Anglophones purchasing property where all of the documents they receive are in French. You asked if I had regrets about it. No. We've learned so much, not only about language, about how things are done differently in different provinces, about how regulations vary, even from whether you need a lawyer or a notary or what profession you need in different provinces. But we've also had an opportunity to look at the cultural differences from province to province, and it's it's been quite exciting to learn so many new things. You just mentioned, oh, my stomach's making noise, something really interesting to me, which is that a notary in BC or British Columbia or a notary in Quebec versus a notary in Ontario, they're actually different professions. And this is something that could be quite a point of confusion for many people. We ran into a situation where this was very apparent when we needed to get some mortgage documents signed for a property in Nova Scotia to help our daughter at the time. So listeners who have listened to the first episode actually heard a version of this story. Well, a component of this story because Michael, my brother, actually was involved in that purchase with my sister. However, as he stated in his interview, he actually doesn't really have any idea of how it went down. So the bank who was going to offer the mortgage on a property in Halifax was a little bit slow on providing documents to us. In fact, the documents reached us not a couple of weeks ahead of time. There were four people that had to sign documents for this purchase. My son, my daughter, my husband, and myself. My husband and I live in Ontario. My son lived in Quebec. My daughter lived in Halifax, Nova Scotia. So we all had to sign documents and the bank was late because someone had made an error. So we received the documents with two days to sign everything and get them all returned to the real estate lawyer in Nova Scotia before before the whole deal expired. As it turned out, when the documents arrived in Ontario first, we figured it was easiest to start with two people in Ontario. My husband happened to be in Quebec with our son. So I was in Ontario. We needed things signed by a lawyer. We had very little time to do this. I found a friend who's a lawyer and said, can you help me today? He, he had to notarize something and he did. In Ontario. In Ontario. So a lawyer did that for me because that was familiar. He was a notary. I know he notarized other things in the past. He notarized a document that I needed to sign. My daughter in Halifax had a lawyer there notarize what she needed to sign. And then we needed a notary in Quebec. Not a lawyer. 
You needed a notary. I needed a notary. I didn't understand that they were different at the time. I didn't understand. My husband and my son were in Quebec and I said, why don't you go to the lawyer that just dealt with, that just dealt with our purchase in Montreal? Cause we knew her and I phoned her office and said, we need some documents, some legal documents signed. Can you help us? She said, yes, sure. They, they, their office said, yes, fax them through to me. So I faxed them through. I phoned my husband and son and said, you can go to that office and get them signed and, and she'll notarize things for you. In the meantime, they were on their way to the lawyer's office when the lawyer phoned me and said, you don't need me. You need a notary. I said, I, can't you notarize things? She said, well, no, in Quebec, you need a notary. That's not a lawyer. So we learned that you needed a notary. So we, she gave us the name of someone. We phoned. I sent my husband and my son en route to the notary. I phoned my daughter in Halifax and said, don't worry. It's going to be notarized. We're right up. We're, we're on track. My daughter's lawyer informed my daughter that... It had to be a lawyer notarizing things, and a lawyer in Quebec couldn't notarize, and a notary in Quebec was not recognized in Nova Scotia as being someone who could legally notarize things in Halifax. I thought, what do we need? We need a lawyer like they have in Ontario who could notarize things like we had my friend do. And I thought, who is the nearest lawyer to the Quebec border? And I found a lawyer in Cornwall. And I explained the situation and the timeline and asked, are they qualified and would they consider notarizing some legal documents that were very time sensitive? And they said, yes. So I phoned my son and husband and said, don't go to the notary, go to Cornwall. <laughs> For anyone who's not super familiar with Ontario or Quebec geography, Cornwall is about one hour inside the Ontario border from Quebec. So from Montreal, it's about a one and a half to two hour drive. And it was in the afternoon. And they said, if you could be here by such and such a time because we close, then we'd be happy to do that. So my son and my husband drove to Cornwall. Got the documents notarized by a lawyer. Literally in the nick of time. <laughs> in the nick of time. And we were able to fax the documents through to the lawyer in Nova Scotia. And the deal went through. <laughs> and had you not been able to contact a lawyer who was legally recognized by Nova Scotia to notarize the documents in Cornwall or close enough to the Quebec border, you would have lost the property. We could very well have because there were other offers on the property. In fact, the reason that they had selected our, our offer, my daughter's offer, was because the real estate agent had given some excellent advice at the time. There were comparable offers to ours on the table, or my daughter's on the table. And this real estate agent said to us, put a very big deposit down. It says you're really interested. So instead of something like a $2,000 deposit, we, off, we said $10,000 deposit. That got my daughter the house. Yeah, this is something too that I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize. There are down payments, there are deposits, and you are not obligated actually to have a deposit in a transaction. And a lot of them go through without them. But in a market where there are tons of offers, it definitely does not hurt to offer a deposit. It shows your seriousness in the offer. And it shows that you actually have funds available. And that can be really enticing to someone who is in a rush to sell or who has so many offers that they're overwhelmed and they're trying to choose. So anything that you can really do to make your offer stand out, if you can't offer more money, if you can provide more upfront, that can sometimes make or break the deal. So that experience taught us we really needed to learn how rules change from province to province and how even legal professions vary from province to province. 
I do have a question for you because you are an example of someone who has kept a property for a very long time. How long have you had your first two houses? We bought our first house in 1989. We still own it. We bought our second house in 1993 and we still own it. Okay. These are two detached homes, right? Single standing detached homes. Over the years, what types of maintenance, if you could just list off the the maintenance items that you had to do to your properties, just to give listeners or anyone moving into, you know, a single family home or really any type of property, the types of things that happen to buildings and that you need to maintain in buildings over the years. Older buildings might need upgraded electrical. We face that in both of them. Upgraded plumbing, replacing old lead pipes to meet current standards, replacing knob and tube and aluminum wiring to meet current electrical standards, new windows, new insulation, ranging from batten insulation to blown-in insulation with holes in the walls that we had to repair, new furnace, new water heaters, water softeners, appliances that we provide to the rental, and of course our own appliances, Mm -hmm. driveway repairs, replacing water mains which go from your house to the street. That includes not only the payment and replacement of your driveway possibly depending on where the water comes in but also the cost of tearing up city sidewalks and city streets to connect to the water mains uh shingles or permanent roofs painting woodwork fixing pointing on brickwork uh interior repairs between tenants who may or may not take good care of your property so you may have lots of didn't your tenants set the kitchen on fire once Yes, which was a really good learning opportunity. We always placed a fire extinguisher on the wall near the stove. Even if it looks ugly at first glance, it saved our house from burning up because the fire extinguisher was right there. So it's also, I don't know if you have addressed um, ensuring that your tenants have insurance. We learned in this case that our tenants' insurance had lapsed for lack of payment. So our insurance company covered the cost. They were going to go after the insurance company of the tenants, but their policy had lapsed. So that was a learning experience for us to annually ask for proof of updated payment for their insurance policies. So what happened in that situation? Our insurance covered it and our rates went up. So ultimately you're paying a premium because your tenant set your kitchen on fire. That's correct. I mean, that was a long time ago, so we're back down to good status, but yes, that was the cost of having a tenant. This so, is actually, sorry, it's just reminding me of co-ownership in general. You can face similar things in co-ownership where, for example, when you co-own a, a building, you have your insurance on the entire building and then you have your insurance individually for your individual unit. And our insurance for our entire building has gone up because of events that have happened in the individual units. And so ultimately, my contributions to the condo fees have gone up as a result of events that have happened in individual units beside me. And this is something that I think people should just be aware of if they're going into co-ownership or landlording, right? These types of things can be the root of kind of like arguments in a condo association or neighbors throwing lawsuits at each other and things like this. So it's just really good to be aware of them and educate yourself on what can happen with those situations. Other costs of ongoing things include things like landscaping and yard maintenance. We had to replace the sod in 
in the backyard of one property. We chose to do that because it actually increases our property value or maintains our property value when we maintain the landscaping. About the water mains, sorry, just on the topic of replacing lawns and things like this, if you do need to replace a water main, would you suggest to contact the municipality and find out if they are doing any work on the water main at any point and see if you can line up your work with them? Excellent idea. We did that on our primary residence because we knew that our street was slated to have the water main replaced. The water main on our street was put in in 1904 and we... Where did you find that out? How do you know that? We phone, we we know it because of city records. So you called and you looked up the city records? One of our neighbors called because when our neighbor across the street turned on his kitchen tap or flushed the toilet, the houses across the street lost all their water pressure. We knew that we had a small pipe. So (laughs) when we needed our, which, which was it was small because all of the the calcium buildup from our hard water, which protected us from the lead pipes because the city tested the lead levels and ours were always really good because it was so much of the calcium buildup, which meant that the, the water main was probably going through about an inch. The water was going through an inch. Oh my space. goodness. It was very small. So we, we needed our water main replaced. We found out that the city was planning to repair our street within the next few years. We found that out because the person that was going to replace our water main, his wife worked in the Department of Planning and was able to find out that our street was to be repaired within a few years. So we, several neighbors on our street went together and got our water mains all done at the same time. They still haven't repaired the street. (laughs) Oh, The pandemic happened and all kinds of things happened. And however, we all have our water mains done. So when you did that, was the city saying then that they would incur the, the cost of repairing the street afterward or... In our situation, the person that replaced our water main just did a a small repair on the street, which was temporary. For us, it was fine because the water main kept breaking on the main main water main. So the city had come and repaired. Our street looked like a patchwork already. So another little patch was not a big deal. Okay, I see. In that situation. So otherwise, would you guys have been responsible for incurring the price of fixing the road? We believe that that's what's facing us in the next few months because the water main on our rental property needs to be replaced. We just have the person applying for the permits to the city now and we expect that that will be part of our costs because that street's already been upgraded okay so these are the types of things i mean there are so many more that go into house maintenance but these are the types of things that i just wanted to make sure that everyone is you know aware of or conscious of going into a house purchase and things that you can ask about like what type of electrical is there and these are why home inspections are so so important uh and why the the government is really trying to push especially in this market for people to still have their home inspection and not waive it because most people don't know to ask these questions. Ultimately, if you had to put a rough estimate on how much money you've put into, let's say, in maintenance, your uh, your quasi three-bedroom bungalow. Are you talking about capital improvements or regular maintenance? I'm talking about regular maintenance and then if you could do separately capital improvements. So capital to, to distinguish between the two, regular maintenance is things like, oh, there's a crack in the foundation. Got to get that looked into and repaired. Or, oh, the insulation needs to be replaced because it's no longer up to code or something's happened. Things that are capital improvements would be, okay, the roof needs to be replaced. And rather than replacing it with, you know, a $15,000 standard roof, we're going to put a forever roof on it and spend that extra 10 grand. So I understand that this is a really rough rounding game, but just to get a general ball- ballpark of what goes into just standard maintenance of a house over a general term of a mortgage for most people, which let's say is 25 to 30 years amortizing. 
some of the capital things we've done. We have, we had an unfinished basement. We did some drywalling in the basement to make it a usable space for our tenants. They didn't, we didn't do a complete ceiling or floor so that we probably put in about 8,000 into doing drywalling and separating off one room, making one room finished in the basement, painting floors, things like that. We spent about 15000 on new windows. We are in the midst of spending about 6000 to repair the sunroom by replacing windows, doors, and improving insulation and siding. We put a permanent metal roof on uh, to the tune of close to $20,000. It's a gabled house with multiple angles. We are about to have the water main done. We're looking at several thousand for that. Um, in terms of... Last- what about the electrical? What was that to change? And just to give listeners an idea of the size of the house, what's the square footage on that house? I think it's around 1,100. We refinished, the, we tore the attic apart, re-insulated and refinished that. That was several thousand dollars because we did all the work ourselves. Painting. We've spent, we've spent close to probably 8,000 in painting, either just ourselves or hiring painters because after one tenant, for example, contrary to our instructions, the tenant decided to paint the house herself. She painted a couple of rooms with a plum colored purple and went onto the ceiling that required five coats of paint <laughs> wow. to repair. And we hired someone like that. We, we almost, we, uh, we, we were almost overwhelmed at that point. Um, and so we've hired, we had hired a professional painter to do that. And also after one tenant who hung many things on the wall, there were a lot of repairs to do and a lot of painting to do. <laughs> uh, one room had over 70 holes in the wall from things that were hung on the wall. So that, the, the painting was a quite a bit. We had a new roof put on. Uh, the roofer did a poor job. The roof leaked. We ended up in a legal battle with the roofers that we hired through Sears, which is now gone, but we hired it through what we thought was a reputable source and uh, had a legal battle over that. We ended up spending $40,000 to repair the damaged roof, the damaged living room ceiling, which started to cave in, and the leaks that ensued that went from the front of the house through to the kitchen. And we had the kitchen refloored, repainted, kitchen cupboards redone. And did you guys end up getting that money back at all? We got 12000 back. Okay. So is that the 40000 did that include your legal fees? No, I didn't have any legal fees. You represented yourself? Yes. It was a very clear-cut case of error, of error on the part of the roofer. Well, good for you. Yes, it took five years to settle that. That's pretty standard for that, that type of dispute. That, again, was a learning experience. So there's a lot of expenses. So regular maintenance, painting between tenants, cleaning, uh, yard maintenance, yard work. We usually spend up to $500 a year on grass seed, planting, repairing fences, that, that kind of thing for outside. Sometimes there's plumbing issues, replacing of a toilet, uh, replacing a sink. This is giving a pretty good idea of how much things can cost to fix. At the end of... Every episode, I ask three questions to to whoever I'm interviewing. 
Um, three more questions, I should say. The first one is, what is your favorite part about property ownership? It's a good investment. So it has allowed us to have financial resources for family things that we didn't have. It's allowing us to have some financial security as we approach retirement. My husband's retired, I'm not. But there is um, there is equity in the properties that we've purchased. So when we look at our overall bank statement that says we owe this many, 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 many thousands of dollars, we realize that's offset by the many thousands of dollars of equity that we have in the properties. Mm -hmm. So that's a good feeling to know that we've made some good investments. And as I said, it's been really a nice opportunity to provide nice places for people to live. So as a second question, I like to give each guest the opportunity to highlight a local business that really makes their neighborhood what it is. So already one comes to mind for Barry, for your neighborhood where your two properties with the adjoining backyards are, what is one local business that if anybody comes to to Barry or to that kind of area that they need to check out? The Parkside Market at the corner of Parkside and Park Street owned by Jim Garraway, who is a fantastic chef. It's a little market store just in the corner, and he provides some of the best food and will make food to order. His scallop potatoes are to die for. And last but not least, what advice would you give to someone looking to buy their first property or just looking to go into property ownership in general? Learn some of the basic steps, become acquainted with the terminology, and talk to your friends and family who have experiences to share with you. That's exactly what I'm doing. That's how this all started. So noted, that is a a pretty abrupt ending. The truth is that I didn't see my mother in a really long time and we actually recorded close to four hours of audio. But there was this really interesting part where she was sharing her real estate stories and that's what I wanted to share. So thank you so much for tuning in. Again, if you can give us a share, a comment, a like, whatever the things are that you do to promote podcasts, please do. Can't wait for next time.